You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14, verse 34. Luke 14, verse 34 and verses uh, 35. Just two little powerful verses. Uh, while you're turning there, you know, it's, we just don't think much about salt until, we're, uh, until we sit down at the dinner table, right? And then we're looking for it. Uh, salt on everything. And, but salt, also known as sodium chloride, is more than seasoning. It's actually one of the most vital cultural components of our world history. Reports say that salt was actually in general use before, our, before we even started recording our history and dates back to 2700 B.C., where a pharmacology book published in China talks about more than 40 different kinds of salt. It even talks about methods of salt extraction that are similar to the processes we still use today. There's even Egyptian art from 1450 BC that shows salt making. Salt routes uh, used to crisscross the globe. One of the most traveled was from Morocco across the Sahara to literal Timbuktu, and uh, ships carrying salt from Egypt to Greece traveled across the Mediterranean Sea and the Aegean Sea. Uh, in 1295, when uh, Marco Polo, that's not just a pool game uh, for the swimming pool, Marco Polo was an actual traveler and explorer, and when he came back from one of those journeys, uh, he told tales of the enormous value of salt coins uh, bearing the seal of the great Khan. As early as the 6th century BC in the Sub-Sahara, it was normal for merchants to trade one ounce of salt for one ounce of gold. Uh, in Ab uh, Abyssinia, which is now modern-day Ethiopia, slabs of rock called amoles were used as coin, as currency. Some were even pressed into rectangular cakes, similar to a stack of cash you might see today. But salt uh, was for more than flavor. It was for more than currency. It's, it was actually an antiseptic. That's why the Roman wor word for these uh, sal salubrious crystals, sal, uh, is uh, first cousin to Salus, which was the uh, goddess of health, right? And by the way, salubrious comes from the Latin word salus, which literally means health, right? They say all roads led to Rome, and one of the most traveled roads was the Via Salaria, the salt route. And several words and phrases from that era uh, have transferred down to us today. We still use them. A soldier's pay, part of which was salt, came to be known as Salarium Argentum, where we get our English word for salary. Our word for salary comes from salt. A soldier's salary was cut if he was not worth his salt. Right? Matter of fact, they traded slaves. When they would buy slaves in the Roman world, uh, they bought them with salt. So if your slave wasn't a good worker, he wasn't worth his salt, right? Historians say as uh, late as the 18th century, the rank of uh, guests at a banquet was gauged by where they sat in relation to these elaborate salt sellers. They were salt shakers in effect. And so where you sat in relation to that salt shaker was how valuable you were, right? If, if the host or the distinguished guest, they would, they, were, they would sit at the head of the table above the salt. And if you sat below the salt then, or furthest from the host, then you were, you were of little consequence. 
taxes on salt would strengthen a government or literally topple a government. Do you know that for centuries the French uh, were forced to buy their salt from the royal depots. And so the high tax salt during the reign of Louis XVI was what helped lead to the French Revolution. Uh, as late as 1930, the protest against the, the high British tax in India was so high uh, and so violent that Mahatma Gandhi led a mass pilgrimage in India for his followers to go to the shores where they taught themselves how to make their own salt. Matter of fact, today where we lived, when my whole family was over there, there's, if you fly into Mumbai, you fly right over all the salt mines that are in, uh, still in service today. Scholars say that uh, salt and uh, temperature drive the circulation of the world's ocean. Salt helps power what they call the thermohaline conveyor. That's the loop that loops the waters through the Atlantic and Pacific and Indian Oceans, right? But maybe the most important thing about salt <laughs> is that it's vital for life, right? Because it's our body's main source of sodium and chloride ions. Experts say chloride ions serve as electrolytes. They regulate uh, blood pH and pressure. We need chloride to produce stomach acid to digest our food. Salt helps regulate the fluids of the body. Sodium's essential for nerve and muscle functions for different organs, including the heart. So thank you, Pastor. I am so glad that today I thought school was out, but now I know the history of salt. Well, the point here is that for Jesus to use salt as an illustration, it's like us using sports or credit cards or Coca-Cola right? It was a major part of commerce and everyday life. And so Jesus takes the scientific, scientific element, NaCLs, sodium chloride, his very own invention, by the way, and he uses it to illustrate some powerful points in these two little supercharged verses. Luke 14, verses 34 and 35. And I want to stand in honor of God's word, get our calisthenics in today. Luke 14, verses 34 and 35. These are the words of God. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I want to ask Dean Edgar, newly married, <laughs> uh, to Allie Edgar, Allie Cobb Edgar, would you ask God's blessings on our... Yeah, let's pray. Let's Father, we come to you today blessed to be here and worship you. We pray for when as he delivers your message and that we can be loving and faithful servants to you, Lord. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. All right. These aren't complicated words. Salt isn't a complex idea. Uh, Jesus simply says salt is good. And that's our first point this morning. Salt is good. Why is salt good? Because salt is useful. Now, we've already seen that it's useful scientifically. We've seen that it's beneficial to the world. It helped establish trade routes. Roads that exist today were because of salt. It was good historically, economically, medically. But how is salt good spiritually? What's he saying? What elements of salt is Jesus calling good? He says salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how shall it, uh, its saltiness be restored? It's of no use. So it, it'll be thrown away. Why do you throw things away? Or why do you try to convince your spouse to throw things away, right? I drive through Collierville, I'm perplexed. I always see, you know, $100,000 worth of vehicles sitting in the driveway and 50 bucks worth of furniture in the garage, right? When their garage doors are up, it's like, 
It's unbelievable. I'm like, you know, th- sell that stuff in a yard sale, right? That's just to help some of you out who are trying to get your husband to clean out the garage, all right? But why, the, why do we throw things away? Because they're of no use to us. We have, we've we've thought, thought through everything we could use this for, and it's just not useful, right? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Why do people trample things under their feet? If you see a watch on the ground, you pick it up. If you see a phone on the ground, you pick it up. If you see money on the ground, you pick it up. But if you see something that's worthless, you don't pick, pick it up. It's trampled underfoot. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. This is where uh, the, the angels are speaking to the seven churches. And uh, verse 14 says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Word that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Now this doesn't mean that I wish you were spiritually hot instead of cold. It means I wish wish you were either one of those instead of useless. You know, north of Laodicea, there's a city called Hierapolis. And still to this day, you can go on these tours and, and go to these hot baths that they have right? Medicinally hot waters. And they would put those hot waters on um, these aqueducts and run them down to Laodicea. But by the time the uh, hot water would get to some of these cities, it would become what? Lukewarm. And it would be worthless. And so the, the, the water's worthless. It's lukewarm. Matter of fact, there was a river by Laodicea called the Lycus. And it was just, it was muddy uh, and, uh, and nasty, uh, filthy, undrinkable. And so whether it's the cooling, what was hot now has become lukewarm waters from Hierapolis. Or whether it's the Lycus River that's undrinkable. The point is the water's useless. And Luke is saying salt is useful, but there are conditions to its usefulness. Right? That's the primary point in the parable today. That's the main point. Now, technically, salt can't literally lose its taste. It's impossible, right? Uh, Unsalty salt isn't salt, right? Salt can't lose its taste and still be salt. Pure sodium chloride cannot lose its taste. But the salt of Jesus' day wasn't exactly the pure salt we pour out today, right? So the sodium chloride could often leach out of the salt, you know, of that of the contents, and make it uh, lose its taste. The ESV Study Bible says most salt came from the Dead Sea and contained impurities like carnalite and gypsum. If not processed properly, it would have a poor taste and would be worse than useless, being use, unusable for food and creating a disposable a disposal problem. Uh, we had a cookout. Hunter got sick, and he was supposed to host the young uh, couple, young families class, a uh, small group. And but he asked us to host this because because he, he was sick. And I didn't know it until Andrew Fisher showed up with forty pounds of crawfish. We should have invited y'all. We had a crawfish boil, and it was delicious. But he said, uh, "Where do you want me to put this?" And I said, "I don't care." He goes, "Well, wherever I dump this out, it's going to kill everything in its path because it's salted." You know, he purges those crawfish with salt, and so when he dumps them out on the street now on Charles Hamilton Drive, there's a salt line all the way down the <laughs> the thing, right? Don't tell anybody. It was dark when we dumped it. All right. But the point is salt uh, is salt makes things can make things useless if it's impure. It's lost its usefulness. And obviously Jesus isn't calling his disciples useless. Right. But he's defining usefulness. Right. 
Salt is useful. So what parts of salt make it useful? The taste, right? And that's our second point here. Salt has taste. I don't mean it, it, it knows the right thing to wear to a dinner party. <laughs> I mean it, it has flavor, right? What one pastor calls influence. Christians have salt. They have influence. The story is told of uh, Woodrow Wilson who uh, one time went to a particular uh, barber shop. He says, these are his words, I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a powerful personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut, and he sat in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least didactic, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D.L. Moody was in that chair. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the barbershop. They talked in undertones. They didn't know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt that I left that place as I should have left a place of worship. Church, salty Christians can turn a barbershop conversation into a worship service. Do you understand that? You know people that you like to be around, that you're better when you're around them, that you're better when you leave than you when you got there. That's how we should be. Do you got flavor, church? Do you have taste? Not in your drink, not on your, your salad or your fries, but covering your thoughts and your conversations. All right, it's not a sales gimmick. It's, it's good taste, right? If the taste is leached out of the salt, it's tasteless. The vital part of salt is gone. Jesus says it can't even fertilize the land like compost, right? It can't decompose properly on the manure pile, so it's thrown away. And Jesus applies what he's saying about salt to what he's saying about discipleship. He's saying in the same way salt has to be salty in order to be salt. He's saying disciples need to be discipling in order to be disciples. That's what he's saying. And we've talked about, uh, we will talk about some other conditions for that in just a moment, but taste is at the top of those conditions. My father-in-law, uh, Tommy Vinson, who will be with you on the 4th of July weekend because I'll be at a reunion. Uh, Tommy, a couple of years ago during COVID, lost his taste and he still hasn't gotten it all back. There's certain things that he can taste, but he's lost most of it. He still gets hungry and has to eat, but it ain't nearly as fun without the taste, right? Church, Jesus is saying the condition of salt's usefulness is in its taste. And of course, taste includes the light of the gospel. Truth that we live and breathe and sing about and share about our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 13, after talking about salt, goes on to say in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Part of our tastiness as salty Christians is the gospel light that we can't help but talk about. It's not a self-righteous, holier-than-thou glow, right? It's the joy of Christ and our hunger to praise Him in all that we do, to talk about Him. Like Deuteronomy says, when we rise up and when we lie down to our children and our children's children at work, everywhere we go. A Christian in God's favor should be a Christian with gospel flavor. 
We should have the gospel flavor sprinkled all over our lives. Colossians 4 verse 6, put it this way. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you'll know how you ought to answer each person. Salt is useful. Salt is tasty. But third, salt preserves. To preserve something is to keep it suitable for use, right? If, you, if your meat spoils, it's not suitable for use. If, you're, if your electricity goes out, Rodney, you lose 200 pounds of deer meat, right? It's spoiled. It's no longer good, all right? God says in Leviticus 2 verse 11, no grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. Verse 13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And what's that about? Well, scholars think that leaven and honey uh, may be forbidden on the altar because leaven kind of represents corruption in the Bible sometimes. A little yeast, you know, a little yeast leavens the whole lump, you know. And honey kind of represents the world's pleasures. Right, But salt preserves. The salt of the covenant is used to refer to the preserving permanence of a covenant relationship with Jesus. Listen to Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. It's a reminder to all true believers that God alone preserves our faith. That's why it says he's the one that's going to complete the good work in you in Philippians 1 verse 6. That's why he says uh, nothing can separate us from the love of, from, from Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 35. Mark 9 verse 47 says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. It goes on to say, salt is good, verse 50 of Mark chapter 9, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it, you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And I, I agree with uh, commentators and scholars who understand that the salt here represents purification by fire. Salt preserves. Salt purifies. It keeps things from spoiling. So for the disciple, it keeps sin at bay and gives us confidence in our faith. Every person I meet that doubts their faith usually has had some sin in their life that they're struggling with. And instead of confessing it to God and receiving the forgiveness, it's just hovering there and it's causing their doubt. 99% of the time, our sin causes those doubts. You pursue the Lord and you obey his commands and you find this doubt falling away. Salt is good because it's useful and its usefulness has conditions. Does it have taste? Does it preserve, right? Now, how do we apply all that to Luke chapter 14? Well, salt in this parable is discipleship. Salt equals discipleship. So its usefulness depends on certain conditions. Remember, we talked about that with salt. So our second point is not that salt is good, but discipleship is good. That's what he's saying. But what conditions make it good? 
Well, Luke gives these conditions in the same chapter. So let's back up to verse 25, Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So there's your first condition of discipleship. Love God more than your family or your own life. Now the Bible actually says hate hate them. But in this context, in Luke 14, 26, hate in the Jewish context meant not putting your family before Christ. You remember when Laban uh, tricked uh, Jacob into marrying both his daughters. You know, he said, yeah, I'll let you marry your, my daughter if you work for me for seven years. And then he covered her up, covered his other daughter up. You know, he's trying to marry off these daughters so he doesn't have to pay, you know, for them anymore. That's, that was a big reason for polygamy in that day. And Genesis 29 verse 30 says, so Jacob went into Rachel and he, uh, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Yeah, because that's the one he wanted in the first place. And served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So they use the same two phrases in one passage. One time it says loved her more, and another time it says was hated. So that's, Leah wasn't hated by Jacob, but she wasn't the one he wanted to marry, so he loved her less. Matthew 10, verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So my question to us today is, where do you put Jesus in your lineup? Don't complain about the way your children act if you're not putting them second. If you put them before Christ, oh, they're going to act like it. Don't be shocked at the divas we have today running around taking photos of themselves in the middle of the street. They love themselves because you loved them more than Jesus. And we need to put them in their place. We need to put our spouses in their place. I, I don't want my wife to love me more than Jesus. She can't love me correctly if she loves me more. God is first or he's absent, right? But he's not God if he's second. And he's not God if he's less than second, right? Love your family less than God. It's that simple. Second condition, bear your own cross and come after me. <laughs> you ever meet people who like to dictate to you what your cross is and they ain't even got one of their own, <laughs> right? They're not carrying any burdens, but they'll tell you what yours are and what you need to do about it, right? I think Jesus added this word obviously intentionally. He didn't just say, take up your cross. Here he says, your own cross because he knows, right? And I know there are people in here that are bearing a, bearing a variety of burdens that may, they may have not shared with Christ or anybody else. Uh, and it's a spiritual hurdle for you, and it takes everything in your faith to wade through it. But God is there for you. Luke 14, 27 says, Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. Matthew 10, 38, And whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Mark 8, 34, Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Our sufferings and our hardships are part of our cross. They're even part of the salt pres uh, preservation that we just talked about. God uses hardships in our life. Doesn't mean he creates every one of them. He's waiting to zap you and flatten your front tire so you can't get home from work, right? There are reasons beyond our control and understanding or God is do why God is doing things. But part of them, he uses these things for our good, right? Can you imagine what it would be like if you had no conviction of sin? 
I mean, you sin with conviction. So what if you didn't have it? Well, you'd be dead, right? You'd, you'd be like a leper who, who has no feeling in his fingers and he just wears his hands down to the bone. You'd wear your soul down to the bone, which is what most of our world has done. When you look at people, don't be angry at the, the, their wickedness. Be broken over it. <laughs> and I don't know what you're struggling with, if it's a neighbor that's hard to love, an upbringing that's hard to get over, a failed marriage that's hard to forget, a, a, healing, a, a struggling marriage that's hard to heal, a rebellious kid, a lost job, family issues, addictions, depression, anger, fear, anxiety, I could name a hundred more. We work through these crosses, some are self-inflicted, but some are just the treacheries of living in this wicked world. Surely we as a church family can collectively say we bear the burden of our Tennessee legislature, which has shot down the appeal to get drag parties out of our schools, our elementary schools, but we didn't. Tennessee, conservative Tennessee, let that go. And if that's not a burden to you, what's wrong with us? I don't walk around dismal and, and overly distracted by these things, but it's discouraging. It's a cross. I believe it's a cross to bear. I believe we're living in the days where it's getting hard for us to even speak about our faith without being called, you know, a maniac. And I believe we collectively bear these crosses, right? I mean, we have to raise godly kids. We have to be joyful believers in the midst of this hellish environment, right? But that's what God calls us to do. And I don't know about you, but it all sends me running straight to Jesus. I cry out to him more when I see the wickedness of this world, when I see department stores and what they're selling to our children. We need to cry out to Jesus like Peter did in John chapter 6, verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. That's where I'm putting my money. <laughs> That's where I'm putting my life in the Holy One of God. Love God more than your family. Bear your own cross and follow Jesus. And third, renounce all. I wish it said something else, but that's what it says. Luke 14, 28 says, For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? I guarantee you, Luke had a, a, a list, a project list, a, a supply list. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war won't sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 uh, to meet with him who comes against him with 20,000. And if he can't do it while the, uh, while the other is yet a great far away off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are the words that came just before salt. <laughs> That's verse 33. The two verses we read are verses 34 and 35. And that's what he said, renounce all. Jesus didn't really mean that, did he? I mean, that sounds kind of like a cult. No, it sounds kind of like a Christian, right? Luke 5, 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Luke 5, 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with uh, money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, I'm not telling you to come and lay your Lexus at the altar up here. I'm not some TV evangelist. 
wanting them to go in my coffer so I can buy a, a, you know, a beach house or something. But I am saying you need to have a life where everything you have is on the table. If God wants your house, give it to him. I'm not saying, telling you to give it to him. I'm not some, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a name it, claim it kind of guy. I'm a give it all to God and let him guide everything you've got. One pastor said, this means being a disciple in the biblical sense, a hating your family, carrying your cross, renouncing everything for Jesus kind of disciple. A disciple who doesn't love Jesus more than anything else he loves is not his disciple. A disciple who doesn't carry his own cross in daily death to self is not his disciple. A disciple who doesn't give everything over to Jesus is not his disciple. However extreme this may sound, it is Jesus himself who says that unless we do these things, we cannot be his disciples. So be worth your salt in the kingdom of God. Live a life useful to Christian discipleship. Let your love for Jesus grow stronger, surpassing all other affections. Make self-renouncing sacrifices for the glory of God and conform your life to the cruciform pattern of Christian discipleship. If the cross is the only pattern of discipleship, then every Christian should have a cross-shaped life. Jesus tells us to, cost, to count the cost of living this kind of life at the very beginning. Then he calls us to keep living it to the very end so that when the time finally comes for us to die, we'll be ready because we've already been laying down our lives to Jesus all day long. You know, over in Ezra, the people were uh, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and they had opponents that didn't want them to finish. But those opponents couldn't defeat Israel by themselves, so they went out and recruited some other wicked kings. And listen to what they say, one of these letters these bribery letters to one of these kings. Listen to what it says, Ezra 4.14. Kind of sounds familiar. Uh, now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore, we send and inform the king. Well, what were they informing him? They went on to say, hey, you let Jerusalem get rebuilt and you're gonna lose some of your taxes, buddy. And by the way, did we mention that we only buy our salt from you? That's exactly what he says. Jump over to Genesis 19. We see two of the Lord's angels commanding Lot's family to get out. Right? Verse 16 of Genesis 19. But he lingered. And this is God's grace right here. So the men seized him. The angels seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him. <laughs> and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. An angel, after grabbing him and jerking him out of the city, said, escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And we all know what happened to Lot's wife, don't we? Verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of what? Salt. Why not ash or dirt or something else? I love what someone said, the Bible isn't clear whether Lot's wife was covered in the salt that rained down with the brimstone or if her remains were dusted with a coating of salt uh, later. But it's interesting that she is described as a pillar. 
The Hebrew for pillar refers to a garrison or a deputy, something set to watch over something else. The image of Lot's wife standing watch over the Dead Sea, right, where to this day no life can exist, is a poignant reminder to us not to look back or turn back from the profession of faith we've made, but to follow Christ without hesitation and abide in his love. That's renouncing all. <laughs> a salty pillar is a fearful reminder, but a salty Christian is a disciple of Christ. Stay salty, my friend. <laughs> By putting Christ before your family and bearing your cross and following him and renouncing all, flee the city of Sodom, right? Because preserved faith doesn't look back. Be worth your salt. Don't lose your tastiness. Let Christ and his joyful rescue of your life be the flavor of your soul. Would you stand? Father God, you are our flavor. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only flavor we got in this wicked world. Everything I build in my backyard, my beautiful backyard around my pool and my pergola and my outdoor shower and all my lawn chairs and all my landscape, one freeze could kill all my landscape. In four or five years, I'm going to have to paint everything again. Everything I got turns to decay except the gospel. <laughs> so, Lord, don't just season my life with stuff and projects and bigger cars. Don't just season uh, my life with uh, blandness, you know. God, put a little extra salt on me. Put a little extra salt on our congregation, on our church, so that we taste like something worth eating. And Lord, we don't want to be a gimmick. We want to be real. But we pray the real part of us is worth having. It's not worth being thrown out. God, help us to live up to these conditions of renouncing all to follow you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If any of you uh, wish to come and join our church this morning and, and serve here, this is the time to do it. If you want to make public your profession of faith, this would be the time to come and do that. Let's sing. This has been Sermon Audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.